0: I got a sermon in my back pocket. Not that he had already had it prepared, but that he was working on it. And he had two passages of scripture that he wanted to do. And this is what I love about Nick. is he texts me back early, or kind of right before this and went, I was probably a little too ambitious. I'm just going to do one. And I think usually it's the other way, is that we're like, what's the least amount I can talk about? And Nick looks at the word of God and loves it and goes, what's the most I can give you? So I promise you not that he will be shorter than me, but he might be more interesting. So, Nick, welcome. Good morning. Can you guys hear me okay? Yeah, good. All right, we've got a really good morning here. I'm excited about this text. Um, can I get a show of hands here? Who here knows about Isaiah 53? A famous chapter, Isaiah 53. Yeah, it's incredible. About the, the man of sorrows who took on our sin, died in our place as our substitute, setting us free, setting us at peace with the Lord, and then rising from the dead. And one of the most fun things about Isaiah 53 is that it was written 700 years before Jesus. Well, the text we're going to look at today, Psalm 22, is written... 1,000 years before Jesus. There's a 1,000 years, a millennium between King David and King Jesus. And the level of precision that God spoke through David in Psalm 22, we're going to look at today, uh, I think it's going to blow your mind as well. So uh, if you're not there yet, please turn over to Psalm 22. And if you're, uh, if you're newer to the Bible, uh, I want to give you a little bit of an intro to the Psalms. So this is my daughter Abigail here coming to give me a hand. Uh, so the Psalms, uh, there's 150 of them. They're divided up into five books. Uh, of those 150, about half of them are written by King David. Uh, it's amazing that this man, the life that he lived, going, we know the story of going up against Goliath when everybody else was terrified. And this young shepherd from Bethlehem said, what God, Yahweh saved me from the bear. He saved me from the lion. He'll save me from him too. And took him down to the glory of God. And uh, on the run from King Saul, on the run from Absalom, his son later on. And and this man, David, would compose these these poems, these these um, these stories, calling out to the Lord. And in Second Samuel twenty-three, there's this couple lines here I've got on the slide. That says, now these are the last words of David. David, the son of Jesse, declares, the man who was raised on high declares, the anointed of the God of Jacob, and the sweet psalmist of Israel. What a cool way to talk about somebody in their last words, the sweet psalmist of Israel. And this is what David said. This is his quote The spirit of Yahweh, which is the name God gives himself in the Bible. The Spirit of Yahweh spoke by me, and his word was on my tongue. Now, that's foundational how we see the Bible. As, as biblical Christians, this is not a book by men about God. This is actually a, a book from God through men to us to, so that we would know what God is like. And so, the Spirit of Yahweh spoke by me, and his word was on my tongue. Remember that today as we go through Psalm 22, you are actually getting, not the words of David, you're getting the words of Yahweh, of God. So Psalm 22. It was quoted 15 times in the New Testament. Spurgeon called it the Psalm of the Cross. And at the top of the Psalm, in your Bible, <clears throat> there'll be a little little title, it'll say like a, a Psalm of David. And if you write in your Bibles, a really nice, fun note to write is, beside a psalm of David, put a little dash and put about the son of David. Biblical prophecy is an interesting thing. Sometimes the Bible is very clear where it just launches in into uh, this is what to look for. This is what God will do. And when this happens, you'll know it and to the praise of God. But a lot of the time... Biblical prophecy is something that the writer is saying something, describing something, and it seems like it's about them. It seems like it's about their time, but over the years, the people of God reading it would say, "Wait a minute! Like this, does, how did that uh, apply to that person or that time or that place?" And the people of God began to realize that these words, though spoken by that individual, go far beyond that individual. And they realized that, that God was speaking through them to set something up. So that's what has happens in Psalm 22. Now, when Jesus died on the cross, I thought about putting a clip from uh, The Passion of the Christ when Jesus is dying on the cross. Well, the first thing he shouts is, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And without much biblical background, it would be very easy for somebody standing there to think, look, look. God's done with him. He's abandoned him. He's forsaken him and totally missed what Jesus was doing. So the Psalm 22, look at verse one. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Jesus on the cross, when he says exactly what he says to everybody hearing, including his mom, including the apostle John, including the Gentiles, including the Jewish religious leaders, to everybody. When he shouts this as the first thing he shouts on the cross, he is shooting right back to Psalm 22, this super familiar psalm. And why would he do that? I'd like to say that it's, that it's as if he's saying, don't miss what God is doing in this right now. As I hang on the cross, don't miss the big picture, because for the Apostle John, for the others watching, it would have been so easy to say, look, it's over. He walked on water. He made dead people come back to life. He made blind people see. And now he's being executed. It's over. I don't get it. I don't understand. But with this shoot back to Psalm 22, the first half of Psalm 22 is an individual surrounded and suffering and being executed, being killed, and dies, and yet, in verse 21, is alive. He's back. He doesn't stay dead. He glorifies the Lord, and then Psalm 20, uh, uh, verse 27, the one I, I would love to do a mic drop at the end when we get there, that the entire world, the nations, come to Yahweh. They come to the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob because of the rescue of of the individual we're going to read about today. So that said, let's go through it verse by verse and see what was it that Jesus wanted us to see. So first of all, uh, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Uh, forsaken, a heavy, heavy language. Um, think about it for a moment from the perspective of David. Um, I can't imagine, like it, it would have been hard for Saul, right, King Saul who was, who is hunting down David. David's living in caves with, with a, a you know, band of criminals and, and, uh, and refugees of the country. And it would have been tough to be the public enemy, number one. But how much more tough when, years later, not, now no longer as a young man, his own son, Absalom, leads a rebellion against him. His own son forces David to run from Jerusalem in the night and escape into modern-day Jordan. The feeling of, God, where are you? Lord, I've, I've tried to serve you all my life. I've only wanted you ever since the days I was in the hills in Bethlehem. And yet, Lord, where are you? I, we, we can see how David would have felt forsaken. But how much more? How much more the Lord Jesus to be, like, like in Garden of Gethsemane when he said, Lord, if there's any other way, then let this cup pass. But there was no other way that only by drinking the cup of God's wrath could you and I have eternal life. Could you and I be declared righteous and blameless in the sight of God? It's the only way to get us home. Now, uh, one thing I do want to mention, because we have to be careful in our thinking as biblical Christians, um, there, there's something called the hypostatic union. So the, the hypostatic union is that Jesus was not 50% man, 50% God, He wasn't like half Emmanuel, God with us. Jesus was 100% man and 100% God. He was completely had the human nature to be able to take your sins upon him and die as a substitute. But he was also 100% Yahweh in the flesh. And I say that to say that as Jesus died on the cross, in his human nature, he bore the full wrath of God. And and that was where this first number one comes from, but God the Father and God the Son and God the Holy Spirit are indivisible. They will nothing could ever tear them apart. So there is that amazing thing still in the Trinity that uh, that we need to we need to keep the two of them together. To be careful thinkers about this. Now let's keep going in here. Far from my salvation are the words of my groaning. Oh my God, I call by day, but you do not answer. And by night, but I have no rest. Yet you are holy. He's calling out, but yet he remembers. Even if you don't answer, Lord, you are holy. Enthroned upon the praises of Israel, your people. In you, our fathers trusted. They trusted, and you rescued them. To you, they cried out and were granted escape. In you, they trusted. And we're not disappointed. In these hard times, he remembers what God has done. we got to do the same. But Look at verse 6. This is a bad situation that he's in. But I am a worm and not a man, a reproach of men and despised by the people. All who see me mock me. They smack their lip. They wag their head. So this is an, an old Jewish uh, idiom for, uh, for showing contempt at somebody. They smack their lip. They wag their head, saying, Commit yourself to Yahweh. Let him rescue him. Let him deliver him, because he delights in him. Now, Matthew 27. Let me read that to you for a second. In Matthew 27, Jesus on the cross. Listen to this. Does this sound familiar? So 37 to 43. And above his head... They put up the charge against him, which read, This is Jesus, the King of the Jews. At that time, two robbers were crucified with him, one on the right and one on the left. And those passing by were blaspheming him, shaking their heads and saying, You who are going to destroy the sanctuary and rebuild it in three days, save yourself. If you are the Son of God, come down from the cross. Like how, how evil. How evil. You think about it, like what, a, f- a few days ago and over the last three years, these people were, were running, like, Lord, feed us, give us bread, heal us, Lord. Like, there, there was one time it was so packed that, the, that some really clever guys, you know, disassembled the roof tiles to, to just get their friend in front of Jesus to, to be able to be cured. Um, and to go from that to now the crowds blaspheming him. But you notice that in verse 39, shaking their heads. That's the same thing as we saw back in Psalm 22. Saying, you are going to destroy the sanctuary and rebuild in three days. Save yourself. If you are the Son of God, come down from the cross. Look in verse 41. In the same way, the chief priests also, along with the scribes and elders, were mocking him and saying, He saved others. He cannot save himself. He is the King of Israel. Then let him come down from the cross, and we will believe in him. He trusts in God. Let God rescue him now, if he delights in him, for he said, I am the Son of God. So John Stott, in the cross of Christ, he said this, I think it's so fitting. He saved others, but he can't save himself. Their words, spoken as an insult, were the literal truth. He could not save himself and others simultaneously. He chose to sacrifice himself in order to save the world. And coming back to Psalm twenty-two, verse nine. Yet you are he who brought me out of the womb. You made me trust when upon my mother's breasts. Upon you I was cast from birth. And then this part, I love this. You have been my God from my mother's womb. That is good theology. You have been my God from my mother's womb. It there's a certain stage of life, obviously, that we don't know the Lord, and salvation comes, justification comes at the moment you put your faith in the Lord. But really, the Bible teaches that from eternity past, Ephesians 1 says that God already knew you and loved you and chose you and already knew that the year, the moment that he would transform your heart, change your heart, and make you his. And it's irresistible. And when it happens, you can run for a while and it'll suck. You'll feel like Jonah on the way to Tarshish and Nineveh but you'll be miserable until you realize that there's only one dad, and he's really good. And when you come back to him, you have found the the meaning of life. Verse 11, Be not far from me, for distress is near, for there is none to help. So he's alone. He's abandoned by God. He's completely alone. And what's the situation? Many bulls have surrounded me, Strong bulls of Bashan have encircled me. They open wide their mouth at me. Picture that. Picture one bull in front of you, how terrifying that would be if you were suddenly in a bullpen and no, nowhere to run. But imagine multiple bulls surrounding you. Just that image of that, of how terrifying that would be if their horns there, the, the nostrils, and the, the ability for them to stomp you into the ground. And, and abandoned by God and alone and surrounded by these bulls, they open their, wide their mouth at me. As a lion that tears and roars, I am poured out like water. Almost picture like those water libation sacrifices, a sacrifice happening here. And all my bones are out of joint. Now I'd want to stop here and say, when did David ever be in a situation where all his bones were out of joint? I mean, he was strong. He was, he, was, he was a really athletic guy. I mean, to take on Goliath, to endure in the mountains for years, to uh, what, what the people would say, uh, uh, Saul kills 1,000 and David kills 10,000. Uh, he, was, he was a man of war till the end and then eventually um, died of uh, uh, natural causes. All my bones are out of joint. Now, stretched out on a cross, stretched out on a rack... A medical doctor in the case for christ there's this incredible chapter where the question is could jesus have actually survived medically survived the crucifixion and the doctor goes through what would have happened to the body in the flogging what would have happened to the body in the blood loss from that the, the hypovolemic shock where there's just not enough pressure anymore and what that does to the body and then being uh, nailed to the cross, to the, the center cross beam that he had to carry, that when he would have slumped forward, the shoulders would have dislocated at least by six inches, and would have, both of them would have been popped right out, and that when his feet were nailed to the cross, his chest would have been in the position, basically, of inhale, and the only way to exhale, to be able to properly breathe, would be to push up on the nails where the feet are to be able to get one gasp of breath, exchange that CO2 with some oxygen, and then slump down back into it again. That was something that didn't exist in the days of David. David, saying this, would not have known what what is this? I mean, maybe he would have seen it in this, but he, he, this was still something yet to be developed by future empires. All my bones are out of joint. My heart is like wax; it is melted within me. There's, his inner organs are in extreme turmoil. Now, again, at the the crucifixion, that hot heat and pain and stress, that makes sense. But again, like. Inner organs in turmoil for David? These words go far beyond him. My strength is dried up like a potsherd, and my tongue cleaves to my jaws, and you lay me in the dust of death. We'll come back to that one. Ah, Timmy Tope, Jamoki, welcome. Verse 16 For dogs have surrounded me. Now, if you might say for dogs have surrounded me, what is he is is this just metaphor? What what, what's going on here? The next verse helps us. A band of evildoers has encompassed me. We're we're talking humans here. The bulls, the lions, the dogs. We're talking surrounded by enemies that are putting this individual in such a state that his bones are out of joint, that he's out of strength, that his inner organs are in turmoil and that he's now being laid in the dust of death. Um, verse 16. <clears throat> they pierced my hands and my feet. Now, this is exciting. I, I've been wanting to talk about this for a long time. I heard back in the day, there's th- this man, his name is Tobias Singer, and he has a ministry called Outreach Judaism, and their goal is, if a Jewish person becomes a believer in Jesus, to get them back, to get them out of that heresy, and one step further, to even go after Christians and make you doubt in the New Testament and make you drop the whole Jesus thing. So a good friend of mine in university uh, started studying it. He's like, man, let's study it together. Oh, yeah, sure. And I started hearing it thinking, oh, my gosh, this is horrible, horrible stuff. So I found something that was a counter to that. And I secretly studied that so me and my, my friend Josh could have debates. And one of the things that I had heard that this guy had said was, you Christians changed verse 16 when you said that uh, they pierced my hands and my feet and he said that the Masoretic text which is the on you'll see it on the left hand side here the Masoretic text is from 1100 AD so your Old Testament my Old Testament it's based on the Masoretic text there's the Leningrad Codex and the Aleppo Codex that are about 150 years apart so it's old, right? Eleven hundred years AD. We're talking Crusade era. That's super old, and it's Hebrew, and it's original. That that's uh, that's what we want. But uh, do we have any older? Because it says not they pierced my hands and feet. It says like a lion my hands and my feet. And I mean, what what, what does that mean? That's tough. there's no verb in there. Like a lion, my hands. And And so Jewish people will say, see, you guys have made it up with what you got there. And, um, And that it really says this. So now, first of all, before we get any further, I'd like to suggest, what's that lion doing to his hands and feet? I mean, it's not licking his hands and feet. The context of these fierce bulls and lions and dogs and evildoers, and what do lions have in their mouth? Sharp, piercing teeth. So even if all we had was what was in the Masoretic text... I would still say, so destruction to the hands and the feet. But the beautiful thing is we don't only have that. So the Septuagint, which you see on this side here, is a gem. The Septuagint, picture today, uh, Israelis speak really good Hebrew and their English is kind of broken and not so great. But outside of Israel, the average Jewish person probably doesn't speak any Hebrew or a little bit that they might have learned from a bar mitzvah class. And so what do they do if they want to read the Bible? They rely on an English version of the Old Testament. Well, back in the day, when the Greek language was all over the world, if you were a Jewish person living in the land of Israel, you would have Hebrew. And if you were outside, you would have Greek. And so if you were living off in Persia, or in Egypt, or in Turkey, or in Greece, you needed a translation of your Bible in Greek. And so, before we were on scene, before Jesus came, Jewish people decided to gather in Alexandria, Egypt, and to create a translation of their Bible of Hebrew into Greek. That's amazing, because with no bias of us, we're now able to look and say, okay, when they had that word in Hebrew, what Greek word did they choose to use? And there's all kinds of good stuff that come out of that. And in 283 is when it started, what does the Septuagint say? They pierced my hands and my feet. So we got 1100 AD saying the lion, and we've got before Jesus saying pierced. Both of them Jewish, so we can be like, whoa, it has nothing to do with us. That's, you guys can argue it out. You guys can have your debate. We're going to go with the oldest, which still supports really what the Masoretic says. But you get a little bit of a, well, like when there's only two, what do you do? Which one's right? Is it a 50-50? If there's only like a, a, a tiebreaker, if you only had a third, does anybody here, can anybody of you think, is there a third? Do we have some old, old version in Hebrew, which would be even better, right, than the Greek, does that exist? Shout it out if you can think. Dead Sea Scrolls, that's right. So once upon a time your grandparents would have opened up the newspaper in the 1940s, and there would have been headlines, scrolls discovered in the land of Israel, they date from the days of Jesus, and before some, um, archaeologists' minds blown. And in you've got a photo here. This is Qumran. This is by the Dead Sea. Uh, if you've been to Israel, you've either gone to it or driven right by it as you're going to the Dead Sea. There's this cave, and there used to be a settlement there. And these caves were the archives, they were the libraries and back in the days of John the Baptist preaching in the desert, this community they stored a ton of their Bibles, about ninety percent of them written on on parchment, which is a uh, animal animal skin, about eight nine percent of it written on papyri, which is like paper, and then even a little bit of it written on copper, like sheets of copper. Engraved in, which is I love it. It's like our waterproof Bibles that will live forever. To really, you know, make this count, make this last. And so um, they stashed these things here, and they were forgotten, completely forgotten, till about 1946. Uh, the, the story is a, uh, a Palestinian shepherd was uh, in the area. His goats went into a cave, picked up a rock, and he chucked it in the cave, to, hoping to hear the goat go, you know, and come back out. And here's pottery shatter. He goes, what, the, what the heck is that? And he goes inside and the pottery, he opens it up, and there's scrolls and they're Hebrew. And he thinks, ooh, this is worth money. So he goes and he finds an antiquity dealer and he sells it for a little bit. And, and the dealer thinks, Oh, this looks this looks interesting. Before they know it, we figure out what this is. That this is from you know a couple hundred years before Jesus to just a little bit after him. And uh, it goes viral. The Brits come, start digging. Uh, what we ended up with was incredible. And um, so you see some of, the, some of the, the digs here. You see that there. Now, the um, Dead Sea Scrolls were translated into English. And I love this. this. Who did this? Canadians, a bunch of Canadians. Why not, eh? Like, we can't leave it all to the Brits and the Americans. So uh, Trinity Western, they did this uh, publication where you can see, because we we don't have every book of the Bible in the Dead Sea Scrolls. We don't have every part of uh, every book. So, like Psalm twenty two by God's grace is in there. We don't have every verse of it, but you know what? We've got verse sixteen. And verse sixteen in the Dead Sea Scrolls says, "They have pierced my hands and my feet." So we got it in the Dead Sea Scrolls. We got it in the Septuagint and the Masoretic text. What's going on there? Well, really, it's just the difference between the word used for like a lion and the word used for pierced in Hebrew. They're almost identical. Uh, my wife was looking at it. It's, it's basically a letter on the end, either a yud, which looks like a little comma, or a vav, which looks like a little comma stretched, and that makes the difference between what word the reading goes with. So all I have to say, coming back now to verse 16, controversy aside, with pierced established, how on earth did that ever apply to David? I mean, in battle, sure, he might have, you know, he could have taken a knife or a sword at some point, but we're not talking about a battle where he's having this a great victory and he's got his armor bearers and he's got his military with him. We're talking singled out and solo. We're talking end of life kind of context, and both his hands and his feet pierced. That's not David. And and in the days of uh, David, execution was stoning. It was not crucifixion. So we've got somebody else and pierced hands and feet that we could recognize who. Now this is not the only place in the Bible. Isaiah fifty three, the one we talked about before, verse five. He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was upon him. And by his wounds we are healed. And Zechariah 12.10, the, the, my favorite verses in the Bible, the return of Jesus, where the Jewish people will look up and the world will look up and see Yahweh on the clouds of heaven. And, and it will say, they'll look on me whom they have pierced and mourn for him as for an only son. So that's what we have here. Pierced my hands and my feet. I count, look at verse 17, I count all my bones. Picture again the rough, brutal medical condition of the crucifixion. He is stretched, he's dehydrated, his skin is so tight that with his clothes removed, which we're about to read, that his bones show like his skin's that tight that people can actually see them, that he can count all his bones. That was a major prediction to look for in the situation. They look, they stare at me. That's the other thing. This whole situation is happening with an audience. They divide my garments among them, and for my clothing, they cast lots. Again, how could that ever apply to David? Now, when David was on the run from Absalom and he had to leave the palace in Jerusalem and Absalom arrived and then he did some very bad things on the palace roof with concubines, you could say, okay, maybe that you know, he went into the king's um, um, chambers and stole his clothes and put on his royal robes to declare himself now king. Maybe that happened, but that's not what we're talking about here. We're talking about the individual who has been disrobed He's lost his garments. He's that end of life. And not only that, but this evil, wicked, sinister stuff of gambling for these garments there in front of him. He's not even dead yet. He's pierced and he's watching them gamble to see who's going to get to take his own clothes home. Dark, dark, dark time. But verse 19, you... O oh, Yahweh, be not far off. O oh, my strength, hasten to my help. Deliver my soul from the sword. My only life from the power of the dog. Save me from the mouth of the lion, from the horns of the wild oxen. So I want to take a little bit of time to talk about something here. Uh, show of hands, who here is other today has a King James or grew up on it and enjoys it? Uh, I know at least one, two. Okay, we got good, good, We got a few. So in the King James um, your your verse translation would say from the horns of the unicorn uh, which is and if you're not familiar with it, it might throw you off you be like what like you know all this like especially we import it would be super anachronistic to do so but we import you know the unicorn with the the, the white horse and the and the horn and, and maybe rainbow color stuff nowadays and and say like how how does that fit with any of these things that are going on here well this is cool. This is something we didn't know until about 1900. Uh, Charles Spurgeon, I, I read his commentary, a uh, lengthy one for this. He wasn't too sure about it yet either, so this, this is really neat. So <clears throat> there's this big wild beast that was very well known for the last couple, two 3,000 years. It has a scientific name called Bos primigenius. The uh, common name is aurochs is a gigantic wild oxen. Now, their distribution, their range, they're extinct today. But if you look at the, the, the red map there, their range covered Israel, covered North Africa, Middle East, Europe. And these things were tall. Like, picture moose kind of tall and powerful. They were freaky. And, like, people would hunt them, which, how, how could you not really? Imagine the food on it, within the sport. But people would hunt these things and they would gift the, the horns to, as trophies, uh, or they would sacrifice them to, to their gods. Uh, Baal worship involved going after these things as well. And these things, uh, the Ishtar Gate in ancient Babylon, again, a symbol of power, was these. Now, the Septuagint decided to translate this Hebrew word that is Riem. So Riem is not just here. It's actually six or seven places in the Bible. And when you look at all the context uh, of all the places that it's in the Bible, riem sounds like a bull. It, it talks about um, behavior of a bull. It talks about comparing it to domesticated bulls. It talks about the strength and power. And, um, and the Septuagint decided to translate riem with monosekeros, as in one horn. You'd be like, well, why would you? Like, what, what bull has one horn? But the interesting thing, and the, and the theory out is that, um, like on the, the picture there of the, the Babylonian gate, in those 2D, uh, whether it's on a vase or on a wall, in 2D, it would almost always be drawn with a one horn from the side view. Like, I saw so many of them doing this research again and again and again. It was kind of the standard way that you would draw an auroch, a wild oxen, would be side view, one horn. I don't know why. I don't know why you make one stick out the side or so, but it is how they did it. And so to say, the one horned thing, the reum, um was how the Septuagint decided to do it. Now, the Latin Vulgate, written by Jerome, four hundred A.D., when he decided what is he going to use for the word reum, he looked at the Septuagint that said monokeros, and he said, let's do the same thing. Let's do it in Latin. And he said, uni, as in one, cornus, one corn, where we get unicorn from. So fast forward to the days of Erasmus, where he did the Greek text behind the King James, and he went with the Vulgate, and he went with the Septuagint, and he kept, and we got unicorn in the King James. So all the way to today, early 1900s, a discovery is made with this very similar language to Hebrew called Akkadian, and in this language the word rimu, and images of the wild oxen, which everybody was aware of, and connected it with the, the, the Hebrew one, and realized, that's it, that's what it's talking about. So that's just what your modern translations would have from the horns of the wild oxen. And I say all that to say this, scary images, all the bulls, and the lions, and the dogs, and then finally, if, if you, you or I were in Alaska, and you were solo, and you didn't have a gun, Kodiak Bear would probably come to your mind. You know, we've seen some movies, and the Kodiak Bear, if he came that grizzly, you would think, oh God, save me. Lord, oh God, don't, don't let me finish this way. Well, in the same way, in those days, if you were out in the mountains, and, and that um, wild oxen came at you, picture the, the, the steam coming out of the, the, the schnoz and, and coming at you, all you would do would be, oh God, keep me from that. And this wild oxen is the final thing in 21 in front of him where then, with all these dangers around him, he says this, you have answered me. Do you see that? It's the second half of verse 21. You have answered me. So if you write in your Bibles, this is a really good place to do a horizontal line between everything before that and everything after that. Because there is a dramatic Change that happens from this point on. Now, did this individual die? Definitely, definitely. Let's let's recap. Verse 15 You lay me in the dust of death. Lay me in the dust of death. A medical condition, abandoned, surrounded by so many enemies, hands and feet incapacitated. Even if he could escape, how is he going to run? How is he going to hold a weapon or anything? There, it, it would be impossible. He's stripped naked. That, that there's, there's no power left to fight when that is able to happen. His clothes are being bartered in front of him. This individual is gone, is dead in front of them. And yet, to be able to say, but God, you answered me. You saved me. How? Let's keep reading. I will surely recount your name to my brothers. In the midst of the assembly, I will praise you. Alive and well. Alive and saying, and Yahweh did it. God saved me. You who fear Yahweh, praise him. All you seed of Jacob, glorify him. And stand in awe of him, all you seed of Israel. For he has not despised and he has not abhorred the affliction of the afflicted. And he has not hidden his face from him. But when he cried to him for help, he heard. Of you is my praise in the great assembly. I shall pay my vows before those who fear him. The afflicted will eat and be satisfied. Those who seek him will praise Yahweh. May your heart live forever. And now, verse 27. This is incredible. All the ends of the earth. That's everything. That's everywhere. All the ends of the earth will remember and turn to Yahweh, to the Lord And all the families of the nations, even if we wanted to try to just say, oh, the earth just kind of meant the local. No. All the families of the nations, all tribes, tongues, languages, people groups, ethnicities, all the families of the nations will worship before you. For the kingdom is Yahweh's, and he rules over the nations. All the prosperous of the earth will eat and worship. All those who go down to the dust will bow before him, even he who cannot keep his soul alive. Their seed will serve him. It will be recounted about the Lord to the coming generation. They will come and will declare his righteousness to people who will be born that he has done it. Now verse 27, I think, is the most incredible qualification of the Messiah of the world because has anybody ever come from the Jewish People, where they were to come from, the Messiah was to come from, specifically born in Bethlehem. Has there ever been anybody who has come who has succeeded in drawing people from every nation in this planet to worship the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob? Absolutely. Only one. It's an audience one is Jesus Christ. No one has ever done that before. Uh, that is something that I I, I, would, I would like to talk to every Jewish person I ever meet about that and say: Have you contemplated that? Have you considered that? Is that not weird for you? That this Jewish person who y- you either don't think much about or think, oh no, he was just just you know whatever, we're we're dedicating our lives and our eternity to him. We're running from from false gods. We're running from false lifestyles, and we are living for him. And we're so grateful for you that you gave us him. Uh, that I think is supposed to be the, the 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 cause for jealousy that Romans eleven says that when that is heard, when that is seen, Jewish people say, "I got to take another look about this Jesus." So all the ends of the earth will remember and turn to Yahweh, and all the families of the nations will worship before you. So in summary. Do you see now why, dying on the cross, of the seven things that Jesus said, the first thing was to shout out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He wanted them to see, don't miss what God's doing here. This looks bad. This looks horrible. This is just the beginning. Jesus, when he said, it is finished, it really was. Your sin was pulled off of you for eternity. Put it onto him, and when Jesus died, it was gone. It was dealt with in every way. And when Jesus rose from the dead three days later, in that same way, if you are in Christ, you will rise too. You will hear the, the voice of the Son of Man, call you by your first name, rise on that last day. So I want to close with Romans 8:31. That no matter what you face, no matter what you face in life, that God that rescued Jesus Christ as he did, he says this to you, no matter what your circumstances. Romans 8, verse 31 to 39. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who is against us? Will affliction, or turmoil, or persecution, or famine, or nakedness, or peril, or sword? No. Just as it is written, for your sake we are being put to death all day long. We were counted as sheep for the slaughter. But in all these things we overwhelmingly conquer. That's a good one to highlight if you highlight. But in all these things we overwhelmingly conquer through him who loved us. For I am convinced that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing will be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Amen. All right. Thanks, guys. Would, would you uh, stand up? I'm going to close us in prayer, and then let's have some fellowship. Oh Lord God, thank you, thank you, Lord, for, for giving us this text. Thank you, God, for preserving it for a thousand years until the events would play out, Lord, in that in that great day, Lord, when you brought about the necessity of setting us free through Jesus Christ dying in our place. We love you, God. We, we pray, Lord, that for the rest of our lives between now and when we see you face-to-face, Lord, that this would mean more and more to us. And we pray, God, that the in the little details of our lives this week, Jesus, that we would make much of you, that we would trust you in all things, God, that we would bring you glory, Lord, by our desire for you, Lord, our, our love, our enjoyment of you, uh, we pray, Lord, for sensitive hearts that would, uh, that would uh, walk by your Spirit. And Jesus, we, we thank you again, Lord, for this gathering here of saints in the mountains. God, would you have your hand on them and protect them and walk with them this week. Jesus, God, we love you. and Lord, in your name we pray. Amen.